Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts. This is actually our 16th sermon. Crazy. We are journeying through this book. And it hit me this week as I was preparing. You know what? Each of us, as we walk through the book of Acts, as we learn, as we study, as we grow, we are actually all in danger. And here's the danger. The danger is that we become enthusiastic spectators. But that's all we become. We're just on the sidelines watching. We're just spectators. We say things like, wow, isn't it amazing what God did through those first Christians like Peter and, and Paul and Timothy and Silas. That's amazing. I could never do stuff like that. Or even worse, we say things like, you know, God did miraculous things back in those days. But God doesn't do miraculous things like that now. But here is the amazing truth that the book of Acts is actually trying to get across to us. It's trying to tell us that the story of Jesus doesn't end when he ascends to heaven. Eugene Peterson, the author of the message translation of the Bible, puts it powerfully in his introduction to the book of Acts. He says it continues in the lives of those who believe in him. The supernatural does not stop with Jesus. Luke makes it clear in Acts that these Christians he wrote about were no mere spectators of Jesus. They were no more spectators than Jesus was the spectator of God. They are in on the action of God. God acting in them. God living in them. Which also means, of course, in us. Now, I want to tell you about a guy named Stephen Davies this morning. This is an Englishman, grew up in the 80s in London, and his absolutely favorite soccer team was West Ham United. And so as a teenager in the 80s, he would catch the little London trains around, and he would go watch his favorite soccer team wherever they were playing. So fast forward to 1994. He is now a young man. He just got married and he is still a passionate, passionate soccer fan for his favorite club. And uh, he eventually gets a job as a courier in London. And he's running around. He's doing that every week. And uh, on Sundays, he continues to play kind of rec league soccer. And, uh, and he enjoys that. He kind of keeps him in, in decent shape. He's playing every Sunday. Uh, but he's doing his, his job Monday to Friday He's earning a living. He's supporting his brand new wife. And uh, one day, his best friend calls him up. And he says, hey, West Ham is playing a preseason game over in Oxford against the Oxford Football Club. He says, do you want to go? So Steve, his wife, his best friend, their wives, the four of them all head off to the game. Now, Steve says, as a reporter later interviewed him, he goes, you know, I'm just kind of your average English fan. I had a cigarette before the game. I had a couple beers during the first half. And his team is not playing well. They are playing terrible. And in, in fact, one player, Lee Chapman, keeps getting beat to the ball, keeps getting knocked down. And so Steve, as a passionate English hooligan soccer fan, feels it's his duty to berate the player. So I love these English phrases. I don't even know where they come up with this. He's like, come on, you donkey. Chapman, you're useless. 
he shouted at the striker, get up! And he just continues to pour this verbal abuse on the whole first half of the game. Finally, at the break, the, the team manager, Harry Redknapp, had had enough. And so he goes over and talks to this idiot fan who just won't shut up. And later they interviewed the manager, Harry Redknapp, and he said, yeah, from my perspective, there's this guy next to the dugout where the team was, and he says he's got West Ham tattooed all over his arms, on his neck, he's got earrings, and right from the first minute of the game, this guy's yelling. He's yelling at our team, he starts in on me as the manager, and uh, at one point he says, we ain't got that Lee Chapman up front, do we? I ain't coming back every week if he's playing. And uh, by halftime, Harry Redknapp says, I had made five substitutions. We only had 11 guys. We only had the bare minimum of 11 out there for our players. Then we got another injury. So he finally turns to this guy in the crowd at halftime, and he walks over and he goes, Hey, oi, can you play as good, you play as, good as you talk? And the rest has kind of become an urban legend. And Steve says, I slung my leg over the barrier. Harry walked me down the tunnel. He says, what's your name, son? Harry said. And he says, I couldn't believe it. I got inside the dressing room. There's the whole team. There's all the players. And he says, we were up two to nothing, but the team had a lot of injuries. Then Harry says, all right, Lee, you're off. Steve, you're on. They get him some, a uniform. They get him the soccer cleats. And all of a sudden, the second half starts, and this guy finds himself on the pitch. There he is. That's an actual photo of him in the game. And all of a sudden, the mocking stops. <laughs> he is now terrified. He's like, whoa, I'm actually on the field. And uh, he said he knew he didn't want to cost his team the game. So they would, he would get the ball, and he's passing it right away. He's getting rid of the ball over to his teammates. Finally, about 20 minutes into that second half, I think they thought, this guy is just a some guy off the street. We don't even need to guard him. And the defenders kind of parted and he saw his moment and he darts in at the goal and he said it was the shot of his life. He ends up scoring and he's just losing his mind. He's just beyond excited. And so the, the game ends and uh, the next week he's just a fan. He's at the local English pub and everyone's crowding around him and he's like, yeah, I had a long and distinguished career. And he's kind of making jokes about it, all this kind of stuff. But when the re reporter interviewed him, he said, you know, as crazy as it sounds, that whole experience and my brief little moment of fame, he goes, it kind of did something inside. And he goes, I went back and I said to my wife, I'm not just going to be an employee of the courier company. I'm going to go start my own courier company. And he did. And to this day, he has a whole bunch of employees and he's made a go of it. And you know what? When I think about the book of Acts, I can't think of a better illustration because the entire point of the book of Acts is to get us out of the stands and into the game. That's why Paul wrote this book. That's why he did it. We're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 19, the first four verses. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
They answered, no, we not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is, in Jesus. So God directs Paul to this city of Ephesus. And it was a really important strategic move. Down through the next two, three hundred years of Christian history, Ephesus probably is the second most important church in terms of raising up missionaries and sending people all over the world. Amazing. And it's actually in Ephesus. We've, we've seen Paul. He comes to a new place. He stays maybe for some places as short as a few weeks, some a couple months. In Ephesus, Paul digs in and he stays for well over two years. He really knows that this place has to be established. And it starts with Paul meeting these 12 Christian guys. And they have soft hearts. They put their faith in Christ. They just don't know the whole story. They're, they're pretty limited in their understanding. And so Paul asks them, he says, like, how did you get baptized? How did you hear about this? And, and they said, well, we heard about John's baptism. And, and Paul's able to explain to them, well, that's a good start. Because John's baptism was all about make a change in your life. Do a 180 degree turn. John is essentially saying to all the people that came to him, stop the evil you're doing, turn around and live properly. Live a God-honoring life. And Paul says, that's a good start. That's a good start. But you guys don't know the really amazing part. The amazing part is, when you follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes. And he lives inside of you. And what you couldn't do just on your own strength he now gives you the power, the guidance to follow Jesus. These guys are like, great, fantastic. So it tells us in verse 5, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. And as historians look back, they figure that these 12 guys actually became probably the leadership team of that brand new church in Ephesus. And that really made me think, you know, I've said it probably a thousand times from this pulpit, but the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us, giving us the power and the guidance to follow Jesus, that's actually what separates the Christian faith from all other world religions or new religious movements. Because if you think about it, every other faith system eventually comes down in the end to try harder. That's ultimately the message. Even think about something like Buddhism. For Buddhists, it's meditate more. Deny your desires more. Follow the sevenfold path. For a Jehovah Witness in the Watchtower organization, it's give out more magazines, write more letters, knock on more doors. For a Mormon person, it's go on a mandatory missions trip, give a required tithe to the Mormon temple, don't drink caffeine, get baptized to redeem your long-dead ancestors, etc. Now, Christians can kind of fall into these kind of traps as well, can't we? We, we get off track. We, we figure the whole thing's just about 
keeping the rules or, or being moralistic. And we, and we kind of get this subtle idea that as long as we are a good Christian, as long as we don't drink, swear, sleep around, etc., then Jesus accepts us and loves us. But the beautiful, amazing truth of the gospel is that following Jesus isn't about try harder. It's about depend more. Now, none of us are capable of stopping sin through sheer willpower. And these 12 men experience that transition. They go from trying to do it on their own to relying on the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the most helpful steps of discipleship that, any, that I've taken in my life was when it finally dawned on me and people helped me understand that if I wanted to sin less in my life, I shouldn't focus on sinning less. They said, instead, you should concentrate on the goodness of God. You should concentrate on the good gifts that God has blessed us with. You know, as we slowly come out of our cold winter here and we get into spring, you know, you start to feel that warm spring sunshine on your face. You look up and you see the snow on the, covered, uh, on the peaks of the mountains. You start to see the birds come back, the blossoms. You, you have fresh asparagus with hollandaise sauce. You have a nice cold Dr. Pepper. I don't know, whatever it is that works for you. The, that's a good thing of God. Come on, you got to admit Whatever it is that's good for you, concentrate on those kind of things. And this amazing thing happens. As we start to concentrate on Jesus, on the good gifts of God, on the fruits of the Spirit, goodness, kindness, self-control, when you focus on the good, you tend to diminish the bad. It's kind of a paradox, but, it, but it's totally true. So following Jesus isn't about try harder, it's about depend more. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does. I'm going to pick up our next set of verses, beginning in verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took his disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating. They ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I've entitled this point, You Can't Use Jesus Like Superstition. Now, in these little group of verses, kind of the, the veil on the spiritual realm really gets pulled back. We get a glimpse into what's going on in the spiritual world. And at first we see the incredible use of the gift of free will that God gives every human being. We see it in full operation. 
Now, this local Jewish synagogue gives Paul way longer than he usually gets. He usually makes everybody mad in a month. They cause a riot and kick him out. For here, I guess they were just a little bit more reasonable in Ephesus. They let him come do it for three months. And it says he argued persuasively. He, he took the whole first half of the Bible. He showed them, this is why Jesus is the Messiah. All these things point to him. And some of the folks believed. And some, it says, became obstinate and publicly maligned the way. Now, what's that term, the way? Well, the term Christians or Christianity really hadn't come into vogue yet. The followers of Jesus were simply called followers of the way at this point. So Paul says, fine, okay. Some of you have chosen yes, some of you have chosen no. I'm going then. I'm leaving the synagogue and I'm going to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now here's the amazing thing. You can go to Turkey today and stand in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I think that's incredible. Amazing. So he, find, he goes there and people start flocking. They're coming in amazing ways. People are coming and they're interacting with Paul. They're asking questions. They're saying, what about this? And Paul is lecturing. He does this for two solid years. Amazing to me. All right. So the Holy Spirit is working. People are coming to Christ. And then we see this amazing, unique, supernatural act where even handkerchiefs, things that Paul would touch, are taken and they are taken to other places. And God uses that and people are healed. Demons are cast out. Now this is a pretty unusual event. This doesn't happen very much in recorded church history. It's very rare in the Bible. But it's always tied to the broader mission. These weren't just done to be cool and this amazing little stunt. They're always tied to the greater mission. This is helping more and more and more people accept Christ. If you think about it, Paul's only one man. He's only in Ephesus. There's no television, there's no radio, there's no newspapers. If the word is going to get out, if it's going to spread through this whole Roman province of Asia, God uses these things that Paul touches. Now, it is completely human nature that we go, wow, that's amazing, and we lose the original point, and we focus on the object itself. We make it into a superstitious commodity. John Calvin, one of the giants of church history, part of the Protestant Reformation, and uh, he wrote about this verse. He wrote a whole commentary on Acts, and he was just kind of at the tail end of the Middle Ages of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church at that point in history had really gone down this road to an extreme, extreme extent. And they got super obsessed with these holy relics. And this is what Calvin wrote. He says, That is why the papists are all the more absurd when they twist this verse in favor of their relics. As if Paul, in fact, sent his handkerchiefs so that when they might venerate them and kiss them in his honor, as many do wanting to touch the shoes or pants of St. Francis, St. Margaret's comb, etc. It's such a human tendency. Our... our Focus shifts from the mission of God to the, to the object itself. And we get all excited about that. 
One of my favorite murder mystery stories that I like to read is the Brother Cadfael series. They're set in the 12th century in Wales on the kind of English border of Wales. And uh, they're written by this Welsh author, Ellis Peters. They're amazing. And in half, probably half the books, the monks and the local townspeople are all fighting over the bones of a dead saint or, or some relic. And it's just really interesting how far this had gotten off track. And it, it became such a business that by the time of the Crusades, there was a thriving business in people selling these holy relics. Now, clearly, that is never what God intended. This is a unique moment of God's power, and it was really for two reasons, to confirm Paul as one of his apostles and to win people's confidence in the good news of the gospel. Now, in verse 13, we kind of see this human tendency to turn from true belief to kind of superstition. And we meet these seven sons of a Jewish priest, the seven sons of Sceva. And they get all excited because they see what God is doing through Paul. And they see how Paul has this amazing power. Paul uses the name of Jesus and people get healed. Paul uses the name of Jesus and demons are cast out. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. So they try it. They don't actually believe in Jesus they haven't accepted him as their Lord and Savior. They just kind of think, this is cool. This is a great name. We can use this. This is amazing. Every time I read what the demon responds, it kind of makes me laugh. Jesus I know. Paul I know about. But who are you? The demon is saying, essentially saying, if you were in Christ, if you were true believers, true followers of Jesus, I would recognize you, but you aren't. I don't even know who you seven knuckleheads are. And so he hilariously possesses this guy, and the guy jumps on him and beats them up, gives them the beating of their lives. Now, I don't wish a beating on anyone, but it is an amazing illustration of what can happen when we use or misuse the name of Jesus without any true belief or any reverence at all. You know, when a committed follower of Jesus uses his name, we are thinking of and believing in Jesus' whole reputation. His birth, his life, his teachings, his miracles, death, resurrection. When you say the name of Jesus, you kind of get the whole package. It's his whole reputation. That's why it's kind of painful when someone uses Jesus' name as a swear word. Or in maybe just a really empty way. Every year they have the Academy Awards, the Screen Actor Guild Awards, the Grammy Awards, the Tony Awards. And lots of people get up and thank God for the award. Now, some clearly are sincere, some aren't, not for me to judge. But I always kind of think of this story when I hear that. And I imagine a demon kind of sitting in the front row and he goes, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? And I want to just say to us this morning, church, I think this is a good reminder from Scripture that we should not treat the name of Jesus, we should not treat the reputation of Jesus as simply a superstition. Don't treat the power of God as something we can possess apart from sincere belief, but rather come to Him in humility. 
Simply ask him to use you like he did the Apostle Paul, like he has done for faithful Christians for the last 2,000 years of church history. All right, we're going to finish off with our final section of verses. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together, burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Amazing. All right, so they have this whole incident with the seven kind of dimwit sons of this priest, but it proved to have a silver lining. The incident became well known. And it says the whole region, the whole city of Ephesus was seized with fear. And the name of the Lord was held in high honor. Now, whenever you read in the Bible that there's the fear of the Lord, or people were in fear of God. You shouldn't think of fear in terms of let's run to the corner and hide and cower because we're super, super scared of God. Every time the Bible says the fear of the Lord, what it means is reverent awe. It's not a cringing fear, it's a reverent awe. Essentially, wow, this Jesus is someone to be respected. Now, the Holy Spirit of God really uses this incident. Lots of people come to faith, and lots of people are convicted. Now, Ephesus, it turns out, was a real center of occult activity. All these people were practicing these magic spells. They were into this really evil, dark magic. In fact, it was so well known in the ancient world that if someone came across a scroll that had magic spells or incantations written on it, it was called an Ephesian writing. That was the nickname. No matter where you were in the Roman Empire, they'd say, oh, that's an Ephesian writing. Interesting how certain things become associated with certain places. We saw already in our journey through Acts, when we were on the island of Crete, Crete became synonymous with you're a thief or a liar or a criminal. That was just kind of the reputation that the island of Crete had. A couple weeks ago, we were in Corinth, and it had a really a connection with prostitution. So much that if you called a woman a Corinthian girl, you were calling her a prostitute. So in Ephesus, it's this link with the occult, with all these magic spells and incantations on these, written on these scrolls. Now, you wonder, okay, Darren, is, is Luke exaggerating? How many people were into this kind of in this city? Well, Luke tells us the exact number. He says when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. We go, great, what's a drachma? Well, a drachma was a silver coin basically equal to a day's wages. There's an example that archaeologists have dug up. So 50,000 of a coin that's worth a day's wages. So let's put it in 2022 terms. All right, if you're on Vancouver Island and you have kind of a lower end paying job, minimum wage is 15.25, so I went with $18 an hour. 
And that's kind of an average. $18 an hour, you work a 10-hour day, that's $180 a day. Times 50,000. Nine million. Nine million dollars. I think we can safely say the occult was a big thing in Ephesus. And it's amazing that all these people feel this incredible conviction and they bring these valuable scrolls and they put them on the fire and they watch them burn. Now you may say, okay, Darren, that's kind of an interesting little story. How is that in any way relevant to me here? Well, I think it actually illustrates this idea that when we come to faith in Jesus, it actually requires a 180 degree turnaround. It requires that, that repentance because we can't follow Jesus and hang on to the stuff that pulled us down. We, we can't follow Jesus effectively and have a thousand pornographic images saved on our hard drive. We, we can't follow Jesus effectively and have a, be completely addicted to social media in an extreme way. We, we can't follow Jesus effectively and be a slave to prescription medication. There is an element that we need to do what the people of Ephesus did. There is a moment when you got to take that stuff that pulls you down, that, that sucks you down, and burn it. Get rid of it. Get it out of your life. Now, I want to be very clear this morning. To anyone going through an addiction to those three things or something else, it's not an easy process. You don't just decide one day and it's over. It is a long process. But the great news is there are amazing things out there like Teen Challenge, credible Christian program that you sign up for a year, helps you walk through and let go of those addictions. Just found out about another place in Vancouver called the John Vulcan Academy. It's a two-year program. Amazing stuff. There is help out there. But you know what? For every person who enters a program like that, that is going to get rid of the addiction in their life, there is a burn the scroll kind of moment. They have to do that. There has to be a clean break. They got to throw those prescription meds in the garbage. They got to delete that hard drive. They got to delete those social media apps. And you know what the result was? In the first century, I think will be the same result in the 21st century. In this way, the way of the Lord, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And when I read that this week, I said, Lord, may that be true at Ocean View Community Church and in the, in the communities where every one of our online listeners lives and watches. Amen?